while everybody's getting back on here, uh, Father Josh, question for you. Um, in your preaching, when you refer to um, the, the Hebrew scriptures, do you, do you refer to them as such in your preaching? you refer to the Hebrew scriptures as opposed to the Old Testament? Obviously, that's always a translation. I've wrestled with that as a preacher myself, kind of what designation to use. What do you, what do you generally do? Um, you know, I took St. Augustine for cover. I think I quoted him on the handout. That, I was just reading it. I, I just saw that. You know, it's popularly called that. I wish it wasn't. I think it's done harm, but I'll often, hey, Christian knows that, I'll often say things like, and so the so-called Old Testament, or, you know, I'll just kind of slide in that just trying to help people, uh, you know, things like that. But yeah, I'll usually say the Hebrew scriptures um, or Hebrew Bible again. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. For the apostles, it's just scriptures, right? Right. It's all the scriptures. Right. Right, the law and the prophets. Yeah, yeah, Tanakh, or yeah, I'll usually just say the Hebrew scriptures mm -hmm, or something, mm -hmm. or the so-called Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really good. Yeah, um, Alan Ross. Uh, he actually didn't bring it as clear as you did, Josh. I wish he had. I had several Old Testament classes with Dr. Ross. He was very influential for me. Yeah, but he's great. But he didn't specify it like you did. Your lecture, honestly, was unique in its kind of ringing um, sort of uh, proper deconstruction of replacement. Again, Alan wasn't replacement by any stretch. Right, but right. he didn't actually go after uh, the pitfalls like you did. I, I, I learned a lot. Thank you. Um, all right, let's get started here. Um, I'll say a couple of words about uh, my very dear friend, um, Dr. Boehm, and, um, and he is a very dear friend. So a couple of things I want to say about him. First of all, um, is this is a Jewish man that loves Gentiles. And, um, and that's very significant. Um, because uh, it's really hard for us to imagine as a Gentile. Hi, Lisa. Um, hard to imagine as a Gentile majority church, which all of us are in, um, what it's like to be a, a Jewish believer of Yeshua and come into a Gentile majority church, where once the question was, can Gentiles be a part of the assembly? And now people are scratching their heads going, so what do we do with Jews? Like, can they be a part of what we're doing? Um, the, the thousand slights a year is experienced by a Jewish believer in Yeshua in a Gentile community is just hard for us to even get our head around. And uh, Tommy and Lisa have come into our community incredibly graciously with incredible humility. Um, and uh, Tommy and I have built the kind of friendship where we've been able to have many frank conversations that have been really full of love and, and peppered with good questions for one another. Um, I have had a chance to learn a great deal with him. They say that to travel the land is a catechism. To travel the land with the Boehms is a double catechism. And I had that privilege um, two years ago. And, and that was amazing. I want to just recount uh, an experience that uh, Tommy and I had together there. Uh, one, that is, um, one that was inaugural, um, not necessarily even climatic, which is to say it's still ongoing. But we were at the Western Wall together in prayer. And I was actually with Father Eric, and he, he and I were praying. And Tommy was over praying somewhere else. We were seeking the Lord together. And then um, Eric and I were praying and, and motioned. And Tommy came over, and three of us began to pray together. And it was a prayer meeting all of a sudden. There we were. 
and the spirit of the Lord fell on us with immense power and fell on me in particular with incredible conviction of sin that, um, that here I was in the land at several classes in Hebrew scriptures, um, been preaching the scriptures for so many years, but it realized that um, I had not understood how I was to honor Israel and the Jewish people as an older brother. Um, and that I indeed had um, unwittingly just assumed the place of older brother as a Gentile and uh, was able to repent of that um, under conviction. It was just in the spirit. I didn't even know for sure what I was saying, honestly, but I knew that it was of the Lord and I knew I needed to say it and was graciously received by, by Tommy. Um, and he prayed for Eric. He prayed for me. It was very powerful to there we are together, believing in, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, believing in the, the ministry of the Holy Trinity together at this, um, I mean, at the temple, at the wall. And uh, to have Tommy pray that forgiveness over us was remarkable. Um, that is not to say that I still am not learning a great deal. There is so much to learn as a Gentile believer. And Father Josh really helped us just begin to understand the accretions that are lined up layer by layer by layer by layer, which is the result of our uh, Western, at times uh, significantly anti-Semitic uh, heritage, or at worst, ah-Semitic heritage um, that many of us got in our seminary training. So as a result of those accretions, it's an intellectual history. Um, it's also, without question, a spiritual reality where the demonic powers have sought to confuse us about the place of Israel. Um, and so I think this is both intellectual and needs to be handled as such, and also deeply spiritual. As Tommy will also get into, at least I hope you'll mention, um, this is relational. I think you probably will. Um, and there's deep, deep relational questions here as well. So um, let me just pray for you, and, um, and then just say a little bit more about your background. I'm so glad Lisa can also join us. So Father in heaven, um, wow, this has already been so rich. I just feel like we're in our zone, Lord, as a diocese, seeking after the things of God. And seeking after the scriptures, Lord, we are fully scriptural. And Lord, just, just embracing the place of Israel in our lives, Lord, how overwhelmed we are that you chose Israel. And then, Lord, uh, you've chosen us as Gentiles, grafted into the great olive tree. Um, Lord, we embrace that. We're so grateful for that. And we're grateful that you've given us relationship with the Boams um, and with some other uh, Jewish believers in Yeshua as well throughout our diocese. Not many. We pray that you will multiply as we're ready to receive them. But we now bless um, Thomas and Lisa. We bless them as our family. We thank you that we are part of their family. And we pray you'll be with him as he teaches us now. Yeshua. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop Stewart. And uh, hello, some of you I don't know, which is uh, difficult for me to try to go where I believe uh, we want to go in these issues, which is um, beyond just theological reflection together. It's what I like to think of as theo-relational engagement, <clears throat> where we're really engaging the Father uh, through the Son and the power of the Spirit together in a way that God can do his transformational work in us. And so that tends to not happen really apart from relationship so but i'll trust god's relationship with you um and try to use the time well um small disclaimer i was not prepared for a fully zoom uh, session so that's throwing me a little bit off 
pedagogically, I did. I was inspired, Josh, by your uh, PowerPoint uh, during the session and realized that that would be much more effective. I think you all have my handout, which uh, I will probably not stick as tightly to because I think there's too much information there. So I will um, encourage you to kind of look at that. And in the break between sessions, I did throw together a few slides to try to leverage the power of visuals uh, so you don't just have to look at me talking. So um, by way of introduction, um, I grew up, uh, I'll share a little bit more, I think, as we go, but I grew up in the Jewish community in Nashville, Tennessee, and so grew up the first 26 years of my life uh, as a um, relatively assimilated, ethnically zealous, religiously engaged North American Jew uh, with roots both in the conservative movement. Jewish movement, and um, really began a spiritual revival in my life uh, when I went to Israel for the first time. It was actually, uh, Stuart, at that wall at the exact same spot um, the summer after my junior year of college, where I was in the land for the first time. And all I can say is standing at that wall at that spot, God just came down again in the same kind of way and just kind of spiritually awakened me with a hunger to want to know who he was because here was this wall with stones and it awakened something in me to want to know who he is, that he's real. And then the flip side of that question was, well, who am I? And my grandparents uh, escaped the Holocaust two and a half months before Kristallnacht and, so, uh, and, and went to Nashville. So I was very aware that my existential existence hinged upon um, a almost random wisdom uh, that was countercultural of my grandfather to get out of Germany. Um, and because of that, I had my dad, and then my dad had me, my dad's an only child. And so there was a sense of hanging on by a thread, why I'm even alive. So that began a spiritual journey that led five years later to having an encounter with Yeshua in a way that convinced me he's alive and who he said he is. That happened on June 14th, 1994, 25 years ago, 25 and a half years ago. And so my life was 26 years in the Jewish community, relatively uh, observant, but assimilated as well, kind of in traditional North American conservative and reform style. And then the next dozen years, uh, I grew up in Messianic. Um, it's been in the Kool-Aid for 1900 years, uh, 1700 since Nicaea, it's been baked in formally. And so that doesn't, uh, that doesn't evaporate overnight. And so um, I believe that 500 years ago at the Reformation, God restored the word of God to the people of God. Um, and that restoration continues in glorious ways, but uh, he did not uh, drain the swamp of anti-Judaic theology and anti-replacement uh, fingerprints all over the culture and the um, kind of the, the biases. And I'm gonna get into more of this as we go. Um, but by way of introduction, 26 years in the Jewish community, the next dozen years in the Messianic Jewish community, really learning about the power of the word of God and the power of, the of being in community 
It's not Lone, Lone Ranger discipleship has no place in the kingdom of God. So then the Lord called us back to Nashville to go live back in the Jewish community that raised me as an open follower of Yeshua, which we did for eight years, uh, six very difficult years. Uh, then two years where things started to break open, all the more confusing uh, when he called us to leave and then come here. And so I went from living in the Jewish community as an open follower of Yeshua in Nashville, Tennessee, um, to living uh, to Wheaton College, which is a predominantly Gentile community of Jesus followers um, in an academic world, which was not kind of where I had originally thought I would be going. Uh, and then, lo and behold, led us to res. <laughs> and uh, our very first service was Trevor McMacken's ordination service. And, uh, you know, people came out after the service. And, you know, when they found out it was our first service, they were very apologetic, like, oh, you know, it was, sorry, I know it was, it was much more liturgical, whatever. And we were like, you don't have to apologize. We loved it. We were like, the spirit of God is here. And God just started one after another for the next three months uh, doing what I, uh, what we call God nods. We're just really making it clear uh, that he was really calling us to, to, to plug in, uh, to serve, to seek his face um, amongst this community. And that's, um, I could say a lot more about that, about that journey, um, but suffice it to say by way of introduction, 26 years in the Jewish community, 12 years in the Messianic Jewish community, learning about the power of the word of God and the value of the community of God. And then eight years back in the Jewish community as an open follower of Yeshua. And now I'm in my sixth year of being in a predominantly Gentile Christian community living as an open Jew. And so I really identify with Paul who basically said, um, I count everything lost with the surpassing value of knowing the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, the person. He is the King of Kings and knowing him makes every other precious cultural inheritance and identity rubbish. And it's painful for me personally to be in a Gentile Christian community that sometimes intentionally, mostly unintentionally disregards and even dismisses and even defiles a lot of my heritage and tradition that are precious, presuming that that's what it means to be a Christian. Um, and yet, uh, what I am contending for personally is to restore, uh, complete, I want to see the Lord, I want to cooperate with what I believe God is doing to complete the Reformation. And that means purifying his bride and uniting us around Jesus. We're not going to be able to unite around common theology or common orthopraxy, but we can unite around Jesus and his word. And that's really what I so love about um, Rez. And I'm going to move from introduction into um, sharing my screen to introduce my talk, which is going to be very, very rudimentary because I did it in like 15 minutes. Um, but, uh, let's see here. And, uh, I called my talk, uh, Israelology, systematic 
uh, theology's missing link. Uh, let God mess with your ologies. So this actually, uh, God started speaking to me some stuff I felt like was for the diocese a couple of years ago. And I started sharing with Stuart and we've had dialogues for the last couple of years. Um, and the invitation to you listening is that I want to invite you and invite myself, invite us together into the presence of the Lord to come in and mess with our ologies. Because our ologies, what I mean by that is the theology that tends to uh, create the lens through which we see him, we see other people, and we see his word. And ultimately, uh, can distract and defile and distort and minimize the ability for us to see his word, divide it rightly, live obediently to it, and love him rightly and love others rightly. Because we want to love him with our whole heart and love others with our whole heart. And then the word of God should fuel that. And so there are some very specific restorations that I want to call us to as a diocese in four specific ologies. I'm going to get into that. Um, but first, let me just, um, just by way of, of, of visual reminder, uh, I threw a couple of pictures in here that to me are just representative of what God has been doing. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's been no small feat um, uh, to be a part of the Church of the Resurrection over the past five years. There's been um, deep, deep joy. Um, but also deep trauma. Uh, and I want to honor you by being honest about that, hopefully in a way that honors the Lord and is edifying and fruitful for you. Um, that's the balance I'm going to try to strike. Um, because unless we kind of get deeper than just our theology, we're not going to uh, move, move the needle. Uh, so this picture to me represents the sacramental reality of the joy of Easter uh, and the freedom that, that Stuart, that you lead us into and the, and the identity and the DNA of, of, of the power of the resurrection in our community. And that my son has been swept into that. And here is another um, clergy's child with um, some atypical wiring that is swept into the joy of the Lord. And there is freedom where the spirit of God is. And I so love all of that. And what you don't see in that is the trauma personally of entering into the uh, uh, Easter and all of what that means going back to Nicaea and the very anti-Jewish replacement calendar that it represents. And, uh, and so that's a little bit invisible to you. And I'm I, hopefully um, uh, we can work together to bring greater healing and purity in the body of Messiah uh, to accomplish his purposes. Um, some of this actually fits later in my talk where I'm going to get into ecclesiology that is really the restoration of the presence of Jews in the church. And doing, uh, I had the great privilege and joy of having my oldest children have a uh, B'nai Mitzvah a baptism immersion service at Res. And that's Marley, my daughter, reading from the Torah and um, in the sanctuary, and then Seth had his baptism, which um, Easter and baptism, if you talk to Seth more than 10 minutes, um, he will tell you about baptisms and about Easter. Uh, 
and the resurrection. He, he, it's a common refrain, no matter what you start with, he ends up there pretty much all the time, everywhere. <clears throat> and so these, these moments were pretty uh, spectacularly um, uh, victorious, I think, in God bridging and reclaiming a certain unity among Jew and Gentile in a covenantal reality, not as an idea of Jew and Gentile united in the Messiah, but in, in, a, in a flesh and blood, sacramental, incarnational reality that, uh, that I think speaks transformationally more than words can in ways that, uh, that God really can use. So let me just identify two joys for me of being a part of this. Uh, these are very rudimentary graphics, um, but uh, still kind of by way of introduction, just to share at a heart level, um, two joys that I have of being a part of this, uh, this movement um, is, is number one, it's a revivalistic movement. So Stuart, one thing that has struck me about being a part of this diocese, I'm grateful and it brings me great joy that, that you don't define the diocese purely in geographical terms. You don't define this diocese purely in congregational infrastructural terms, right? You don't lead primarily a diocese defined by the states that you have authority over. You don't primarily define your sphere of influence and authority based on the number of congregational entities that are there. All that's important. But ultimately, you define your vision, your passion, your calling, and your leadership in terms of a spirit-led revival, a revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. It's revivalistic. And I am all in on trying to follow you as you follow Jesus, as he leads us revivalistically for the glory of his name and the disciple making among all nations for the glory of God. That is revivalistic. And I am all in with the, the revival, reviving work of the spirit of God as he works through congregational infrastructures, as he works through geographical spheres of influence and authority. Um, but ultimately, my personal experience with Gentile Christians has been um, at some point, I hit a ceiling in that I feel called to agree with glorifying a man, a denomination, a church, an organization, a mission, a label. It's something, some secondary identity or earth-trained myopic something where my Jewish identity and calling as a child of Abraham, uh, a child of Jacob, as a physical seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, I want to be willing to count my Jewish identity as rubbish for the sake of exalting Jesus but I would be denying him if I denied my Jewishness because it represents the covenant fidelity of God as a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. And so I could deny my Jewish identity out of fear of man because it's going to irk you, just like I could go into the Jewish community and deny Jesus out of fear of man because I don't want to offend them. But, you know, God is an equal opportunity offender. And... Um, uh, and so I appreciate and I'm very joyful about the revivalistic 
nature of our movement. Uh, secondly, the relational nature of the movement. And I just, uh, I said this to you, Stuart, um, when I met Josh for the first time and John, uh, you as well, uh, I so treasure uh, the relational culture and DNA of the movement. And even as I'm speaking, I just want to be proactive. Uh, I'm assuming, I can't see everybody on the talk, but I'm assuming, John, you're still here. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm, they, I'm here. And Christian, uh, so grateful for the opportunity I had to connect with you during Revive when you were here. And I just um, want to honor all of you um, leaders of the diocese. And um, uh, I want to submit my offering to you humbly, knowing that, um, uh, that I believe God is wanting to do a deeper work than just display and help us agree on our ologies. <laughs> he wants to deeply weave our hearts together, our lives together, and the DNA of our beings together in a way that he can use uh, to spread the gospel and to display the gospel, to display the surpassing value of the message that we that we bring. And and so the relational nature of our movement, these things just really, really uh, are brought to the surface to me about what is, is worth um, dying for. I'm not going to die for Jewish culture and tradition, um, but neither will I die defending Gentile tradition. Uh, tra traditions are secondary. They're the form. And we're after the substance, uh, the substance. And so a framework and overview for my talk um, one of the, the visions that God gave me a couple years ago uh, that, Stuart, I shared with you up on the platform that day is kind of thinking of revival as, you know, kind of like a um, this, this, this tray of a feast. And every day, every week, every church feast, you know, we want to serve out the word of God and be as a community to the people of God and invite unbelievers into a feasting on the very presence of God. I mean, a feast. And so I'm all, I'm all in on that. But I feel like that little sterno underneath the, the tray is what I think of as restoration. Restoration is the fire that burns away the impurities and provides sustaining heat and fuel to make the feast tasty, nutrient-rich, not tainted with any bacteria that has grown because it's gotten cold. And, and, and so I feel very called to this restorationist underpinning, prerequisite kind of reality. And so I've operationalized what that looks like in practical terms in these four ologies, Christology, ecclesiology, missiology, and eschatology. And what I want to put before you for my talk is the prerequisite foundation for restoration, a work of God to restore what has not been reformed since the Reformation. And it necessarily has to work through our ologies. And these ologies are sequential. And there is a linear component to it. And so I've mapped these ologies onto the five S's where I think they go in the outline. And each one of these ologies are clearly 
cash out in the specific restoration trajectory I'm proposing in one of the S's. And so I don't think we're gonna get to go through those four in a very robust way, but they are spelled out in a very rudimentary way in your outline. I feel like though, where I need to spend the bulk of my time with you is to plow the hard ground to create an appetite for you of the, of the, of the tragic, no, not the tragic, of the, um, uh, the, the importance, the critical importance of really meditatively seeking the Lord to restore, to, to, to seek the Lord for the purification, the restoration work that he wants to do as we become obedient to the scriptures and restore the full implications of Christologically what it means to restore the Jewishness of Jesus. And then sacramentally, what does it mean to restore the presence of Jews in the church ecclesiologically? And then go out and invite missiologically Jews and Gentiles in to this great thing. And to what does it mean to restore the prioritization of the gospel being to the Jew first? What does that mean in how we sacrifice our time, talent, and treasure? Focusing on the salvation of others. Does that prioritization matter where we give and where we proclaim to the Jew first? What does that mean? How do we preserve distinctions that God has made in a way that does not promote favor, does not display favoritism? Because God does not play favorites, but he does make distinctions. And when we minimize those distinctions for the sake of preaching a universal gospel, we water down the power of God coming through the gospel. So we've got to restore and preserve the particularism and yet preach the universalism. We've got to hold those in tension. And uh, Father Josh, I uh, so appreciate uh, the way you've helped us recapture the unity of the scriptures for Gentiles to uh, enter into the glory of the identity of Israel as Gentiles. And as the Jewishness of Jesus is restored and the presence of Jews in the church is restored and the missiological implications of the Jew to the Jew first, both for blessing and judgment and how that works out missiologically, we land at the most powerful place of an eschatological restoration where the spirit of God restores a revelational reality in being able to restore, to read the prophets in the full power of what they're talking about. And I'm going to give you some practical frameworks to go deeper there. Um, and uh, I want to spend a little bit more time maybe on that one. Um, but like I say, I'm going to spend probably the bulk of our time doing some plowing up the, the ground beforehand. Um, because I think these conversations in the years ahead for those four restorations and how they work through our five S's, I believe are going to be fruitful conversational frames that I believe God will bless to fuel our revival movement. Let me offer what I think of as two gutters. This is very, very simple to frame our conversation. Um, conversations eventually are gonna go into questions of Israel, who is Israel and who is the church? And what's the relationship between Israel and church? So on a very basic, simplistic level, I wanna frame the gutters 
the pitfalls to say these are where we don't want to go. Unbiblical boundaries are to say that Israel and church are synonymous, which is full replacement theology, or they're mutually exclusive. Biblical Israel and modern Israel are non-equivalencies. To equate them is, conf is conflation and it's not biblical. That's what is being taught in many evangelical circles that the biblical Israel and the modern Israel are mutually exclusive and to connect them at all is not responsible biblical stewardship. That is, I believe, heretical. And so I am framing a synonym, synonymous relationship and a mutually exclusive relationship as unbiblical out of bound gutters and where we want to stay is at a place where we are wrestling with that. And I think the four ologies are a good way to kind of dig down into that and work it out and walk it out biblically together. And so uh, this morning as I was praying, I had this sense of um, Israelology. And what I want to submit to you is um, thinking about Israelology and Israel as uh, a compass, or actually theology as a compass. You and I, we read our Bibles, and um, I'm going to just alert you to page two if you want to see where I'm going to take this from, because I don't think I'm going to get to go through this part, but I want to just tee it up. On the bottom of page two on the outline, under Roman numeral two, Restoration Israelology, uh, this is under Christology, under uh, number one, where I get into a hermeneutic, a method of interpreting the Bible. Letter A, you'll see word, text, translation, interpretation, doctrine. Okay. So you can hopefully see that there at the bottom on the text, word, translation, interpretation, doctrine. God has spoken his word. That's been written down in a text. That text then gets translated over the years. Those translations then get interpreted through the lens of the wisdom of man. They get bundled together in what we call doctrines. And then those doctrines become lenses through which we read the word of God. Restoration, in the way I'm proposing, it means that we purify our doctrines, our interpretations, understand the limitations of translation as one culture is translated into another linguistically, and then let the word of God written be used by the word of God's spirit living to do the transformational work in us as his followers to make us more like him. And so Israelology is the missing link of systematic theology. And in a sense, Israelology is like the magnet in a compass. That's what I want to submit to you. A compass works to guide you in the wilderness because of the magnet that is in it that naturally aligns with reality and the, the north part of the magnet aligns 
with the South Pole and the North Pole and you get an alignment magnetically so you can tell where you are. If you took the magnet out of the compass, you would get lost very quickly. Now, I am grateful for the ripe and mature theology over the last 2,000 years. But as Martin Luther said, and I actually have this written down in my journal, I meant to get it in the break, but I was making these slides. Um, Martin Luther said, um, no, it's okay. Martin Luther said uh, something like, where the, we honor the fathers uh, and where they got it right, but where they didn't, we honor them and then disregard them or something like that. And I just love that coming from Martin Luther who spawned the Reformation and yet penned uh, vile words that Hitler used to justify the Holocaust. How do you, in one life, you know, traverse that? Well, I honor the work of the fathers over the last 2,000 years that have given us great theologies. But as it relates to Israel and the Jewish people, uh, as they say, Houston, uh, we have problem. <laughs> and um, what I want to propose to you is that this Israelology is like a magnet that's going into our, our compass to get a doctrinal, a doctrinal alignment a little more clearly so that our doctrines, which are shaped by our interpretations, which are fueled by our translations, which come out of our engagement with the text, which are really touching the word of God living, uh, can be restored and purified so the power of God and the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus himself can flow to fulfill the great priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, that we would be one, even as he, are, he is one. So the ability to, for me to be invited amongst my Gentile brothers and sisters, to be invited as a Jew into this community for the last five years as a Jew um, is unprecedented in my experience. Um, typically, if I'm welcomed in fellowship at a heart level among Gentiles, at some point I'm either going to offend you, alienate you, or be otherwise irrelevant to you in a way that uh, just makes it so that, you know, um, it, so I, I count it a great honor and a great joy. Uh, and I, I want to approach it, and I do approach this task with a sense of fear and trembling. I believe it's, it's holy work that God is inviting us into, uh, that I would be more transformed into the image of Jesus and that you would be, and that together we could contend for the for the restoration of the power of the word of God to flow in the way we engage the text, interpret it, and not only declare it, but demonstrate it in the way we do life together as a body and let the diocese grow in a way that the flavors of the kingdom of God are manifest. And then, uh, uh, so uh, Israelology in a sense, a right thinking of Israel and the Jewish people, it's like putting that magnet back in the compass so that all the ologies kind of all line up rightly, the power of the gospel can flow. And uh, the revival that we are called to as a movement um, can be fueled in a sustainable sterno that will uh, touch the very throne of God and sustain a generational burn for his glory. So with that, um, I wanna uh, have my wife read Romans 11 for us. And um, because as you'll see in my outline uh, on page one, uh, 
the second little arrow says distinction theology. And I'm going to frame nine chapters for you as a good set of bookends of the Bible uh, to get into this topic. So let me just take a run and jump into it by reminding you of what you know, that the Bible was written over, you know, what, thousand years, thousands of years, whatever it is, by how many different people, um, John, Deacon John and, and Father Moon, all of uh, theologians can, can work this stuff out better than me. I'm just a little, little special ed professor. But uh, God worked through all of these people through all of this time and has given us his word that starts with two chapters of perfect relational unity between human and human and God and human and ends in the same space of the last two chapters of a restoration of that intimacy between man and God and between man and man, right? Human beings and human beings. The vertical and the horizontal unity relationally of the first two chapters and the last two chapters are bookends, right? And so then when we think about Israel and the Jewish people and the plan of God, Acts 10 through 5 is in a sense a hinge of history where the Gentiles, the gate is swung open to the Gentiles with Cornelius culminating in the Jerusalem Council. And then flip over to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you get the culmination of a futurist vision of how this is going to end. So in a sense, when Jesus came, Cornelius opens the gate and the Jerusalem Council and all that happens in there opens the gate to the Gentiles, which was always the plan of God. And thank you, uh, Father Josh, for how you brought that all back through all of the testimony of the prophets. But it culminates then in Paul's uh, vision of how it's all going to end in a futuristic way. So let's just read Romans 11. Let the word of God kind of land on us, because this is the Bible work that we'll need to do um, as we move ahead. I am going to be reading from um, the Tree of Life version of the Bible, which is a Messianic translation. Romans 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he knew beforehand. Or do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Adonai, they have killed your prophets. They have destroyed your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in the same way also, at this present time, there has come to be a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but the elect obtained it. And the rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes not to see and ears not to hear until this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bend their back continually. 
I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their false step, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, if their transgression leads to riches for the world and their loss riches for the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Insofar as I'm an emissary to the Gentiles, I spotlight my ministry. If somehow I might provoke jealousy, to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if the rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first fruit is holy, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker of the root of the olive tree with its richness, do not boast against, against the branches. But if you do boast, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough. They were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Notice then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who fell, but God's kindness toward you, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you are cut out of that which by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not warn you, brothers and sisters, to be ignorant. I'm sorry, I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be ignorant of this, of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own eyes, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer shall come out of Zion. He shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the good news, they are hostile for your sake. But concerning chosenness, they are loved on account of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown, shown mercy because of their disobedience, in like matter, manner, these also have now been disobedient with the result that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how incomprehensible his ways. For who has known the mind of Adonai or who has been his counselor or who has first given to him that it shall be repaid to him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.
Amen. Amen. So Paul wrote those words steeped in a culture where Jew and Gentile dynamics were the dominant reality, sociologically, religiously, culturally, relationally, politically, in all ways. We're very removed from that context now. So part of what I believe God is doing and part of what the purpose of this session is today is to try to restore Jew-Gentile dynamics as a foil for really understanding biblically more of the, the plan and the ways of God. And we're doing that in a cultural context where we're trying to be a multi-ethnic family. And multi-ethnic families in our context is mainly black, white, and Latino white. And so next week and the following week, we're gonna be dealing with black, white unity and Latino majority culture unity and how to be a multi-ethnic family. But to be biblical, we're digging down and restoring the pristine distinctiveness between Jew and Gentile dynamics that haven't changed. As much as there's been a dominant Gentile-driven culture within Christianity, that doesn't erase the distinction between Jew and Gentile that God made. So in a sense, you can think about it like creation distinctions and redemption distinctions. Creation distinctions are the ethnos that God created, black and white, all the different ethnos of the world, all the different ethnicities that are going to ultimately uh, around the throne. Uh, God created all that difference, and it's going to ultimately be unified around the throne of King Jesus for endless ages to worship him. But to get there, God injected some redemptive distinctions into the human family. And that started with Abraham, Abram then, to create a particular covenant relationship with one family to reach all families. And then the family grew to a nation, and at Mount Sinai, he took that nation as a particular set-apart nation in order to reach all nations. And the particularism of Abraham's mishpacha family and the particularism of the nation of Israel are both particularisms for the sake of the universal, one family to reach all families, one nation to reach all nations. But those particularisms are not erased as if God was about a homogenized human family. And so in a sense, we are restoring the redemptive distinctiveness of Jew and Gentile to recapture and restore the purity and power and potency of the gospel message, which then will fuel more authentic and powerful and fruitful Black-white engagement, Latino-white engagement, where the spirit of the world wants to glory in diversity. We glory in Jesus, who has already made the, all things that are diverse one, and we preserve that unity. And 
whether someone has a secondary identity of their ethnos or a secondary identity of their gender or sexuality, these things aren't the drivers ultimately in the way we love God and love others because we're, we're, we're agreeing with the distinctions God has made. And so we're trying to restore the biblical power and clarity of the distinctions that he has made in order to engage the confusion in our culture regarding ethnic diversity, sexual diversity, gender diversity, and all of that. So uh, secondary identities have to yield and give way to primary identities. And primary identities um, are in Jesus, yes, but as Jew and Gentile is how he created and redeemed us, and that's what we're contending for. So um, what time should I stop for questions? Um, you, we have until 1230, so you can give as much time as you want um, for questions in there. Okay. Um, so let me pick up now. Uh, actually, I'm going to do one more thing uh, before I... I run through the outline, and I'm going to. Uh, uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll take comfort in knowing I'm, I'm starting a conversation more than uh, trying to finish one or do justice to one. Uh, but that's really what I feel like the invitation has been. Um, so I'm going to do one other thing, uh, and I didn't get. I had one more slide I wanted to make for you, um, but uh, I didn't get a chance to. So let me. Uh, ask you to maybe write this down or at least engage with a mental map because this mental map I think is really really important to get a big picture uh, and then I can probably just blow through a few comments from the whole rest of the outline and then we can take questions and do it that way okay so the mental map is I want you to think of three C's cross crown consummation so if I were to be making a slide, I would have a little oval or a box or something, cross, crown, consummation. And what those three boxes need to stand for are Jesus' first coming with the cross, Jesus' second coming when he's coming back to earth to rule and reign, wearing the crown of the king of all the world, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, sitting on the throne of David, ruling and reigning the nations, He's coming back with a crown. Thirdly, consummation, the consummation of all things, the restoration of all things, transitioning us into timeless time and all eternity when uh, uh, the eternal state is probably the best label for it that I would propose to us is consummation is the eternal state with uh, the new Jerusalem coming down and it's uh, the e eternal state. And so if you've got that in your mind, cross, first coming, crown, second coming, consummation, eternal state, I would like somebody, a non-clergy, uh, to tell me where we are today in that map. Please unmute yourself and tell me where we are in the map on those three C's. Uh, 
I'm a trained academic. This Cross. is called wait time. Yes. Uh, cross. So we are at the cross. So I, I'd like to actually think of it as a continuum because what I'm actually wanting you to do is think about the time frame before the first square, in between squares one and two, in between squares two and three, and then there's really nothing after the last square. But where are we on that map, on that linear map? Well, the way you described it, it sounds like you're saying that um, his kingship is in his return. But I, I guess you could you could see his kingship is already. There's that like already, but then also not yet, like it's coming. So I guess you could say king, time of the time of the king. Um, but I feel like I could hear an argument for cross or king. But, um, okay. I thought between between cross and crown is my vote. I see you nodding, Will. I second that vote, yeah. Okay, Caleb, you're nodding. Okay. Uh, Laura, you're nodding too. Okay. So, yeah, so in a sense, I'm trying to get a linear chronology where we think pre-cross, which is creation to Jesus, right? Genesis 1 to 11 gets us in all the, you know, primordial history. And then with Abram in Genesis 12, we get a covenant that's going to rebuild humanity on Abrahamic faith. Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. I can rebuild humanity on that. I'm going to take you as one mishpacha to reach all the mishpachot of the earth. That grows to a nation. And Exodus 19, 6, you get a holy nation set apart from the nations of the world with this uh, proposal in Exodus 19 and a marriage betrothal, really, in Exodus 24, 6 and 8 with the blood. And you get a marriage between God and Israel when he's covenanting with the nation. And then you get from uh, Moses, you get to King David, and David, you get the prophets, and then you get all the kings, and you get all the speaking of all the prophetic witness of, of how the leadership of the nation was, were the kings, right? But they stopped following God, so God had to, God's been trying to raise up from Moses to the priests, to the prophets, to the judges, or the judges, really, then the prophets, the kings, but they didn't really walk rightly, so he had to raise up prophets, and all of that, in Jesus, he's fully prophet, he's fully priest, he's fully judge, he's fully king, it all works together with him, but you get 2,000 years ago was Jesus, 2,000 years before that, roughly, was was Abraham. So all that's pre-cross, right? 2,000 years ago is cross. So think in your linear, I want to create a mental map for you. First box is cross. Pre-cross is everything before that, okay? And God gave us revelation, right? All the scriptures, all of the so-called Old Testament, he gave us before the cross, right? 400 years of silence. You with me? Pre-cross. Then you get cross to crown, and we're living in that space here before his return, right? Matthew, I loved your point that he wears a crown now. He's at the right hand of the Father, spiritually ruling and reigning on his kingship on the earth through us. Yes and amen. It's a now reality. Absolutely. But he hasn't incarnationally, physically, sacramentally, bodily 
non-gnostically return yet. So we're pre-crown, post-cross. And then from the crown, there's a consummation eternal state. So can we agree that when he returns, it's not immediately eternal state, right? Stuff's going to happen. But after he comes, before the eternal state consummation, something's going to happen. Can we agree on that? Okay. So we've got three boxes, cross, crown, consummation, and we've got different time frames, pre-cross, uh, cross to crown, it's kind of where we're living now. And we're looking forward to both his return and the, the final state. Now I have a question for you. Think about the biblical witness of the Old Testament. And even, uh, uh, no, let me just, maybe let me say the, the, uh, the biblical witness of the apostles and the prophets. Apostle, the apostles and the prophets, the word of God, the prophets spoke, the apostles have interpreted and told us everything. So clearly the New Testament, uh, well, so let me ask you a question. Do you believe that the majority of the Bible, the word of God, Genesis to Revelation, all of it, majority by being 50%, 50.1% or more, simple majority, if you had to, and I realize this is hard, if you had to, would you say uh, that of those three events, cross, crown, consummation, what do you believe the majority of the scriptures point to? If you had to stack up, this is about this, this is pointing us to this, this is to point us to that, do you think the majority point us to the cross? The majority point us to the first, the first coming of the Messiah, do you think the majority point us to the second coming of the Messiah, or the majority point us to the eternal state? And so I'm going to ask you to think about it for a minute. I'm actually going to ask you to do a finger poll and commit to either holding up one finger. This would mean the first coming. I think the majority, if I had to, would say it points us to the cross. Majority points us to his return or points us to the eternal state, lying, lying with the lamb, and timeless time, everything's swallowed up in eternity. It's a, and if you want to vote for two of them, you can hold up a number on both hands. Whatever you want. You can vote for one or vote for two. And if you want to vote for three, you got to use a foot to get all three. And then, But if you're going to vote for two, uh, uh, I just want to, I'm, I'm trying to push you into a kind of committing to something. Uh, so when you're ready, Kind of take a minute and I'll call for a vote. Is the question clear? You know what I'm asking of you? Okay. Okay, thanks, Will. Susan, thank you. Caleb, Christian. Matthew. Lydia's wrestling. She's doing the math. <laughs> Cross consummation. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, okay. Laura, one and three. Okay. Well, good. Well, rather than try to argue which one is right, um, I, I think that when believers come to the text, 
whether it's intentional or not, I think we live and preach as if the majority of the biblical witness points us um, to the cross and to the eternal state. I think that's what we think. I don't think that's actually true. Um, I think that the majority, if we have to splice and dice, I think the majority of scripture points us to post-cross, pre-crown, to prepare us for his second coming. And all that's going to happen post-second coming, pre-eternal state. Does that make sense? So if you look at the aggregate witness, certainly God gave us enough to recognize his first coming, clearly. But I think if you had to slice and dice and put in buckets primary referent point, I think there's much more biblical witness of the apostles and prophets that wanted to equip us to be prepared for his second coming, to point us forward to his return, and to understand what it's going to be like right after that, pre-eternal state. So I would submit that to you, uh, and if uh, and would love for you to engage me if you think um, that's, that's not true. Um, but again, rather than argue about mathematics, what I'm trying to point out to you is I think a blind spot where we tend to preach backwards looking cross exaltation, which is good and right, but insufficient. And we don't preach enough forward looking crown in a way that doesn't degenerate into allegorical eternal state application now. It's all just allegorical eternal state. It's like, well, you know, it's all just the new Jerusalem and we're going to heaven and it's, it's all just, it's all Gnostically informed biblical future realities. And so I, <clears throat> um, I am really excited uh, to, to learn more from you, Stuart, about how you are seeing um, the spirit of God preserve us and restore the uh, us from against the spirit of Gnosticism as it's rampant in our age today um, in a very, uh, uh, so, but I think if we can restore an engagement with the Bible, realizing that I think there's more pointing us to his return and the reality is just before and just after, rather than always just go to the grooves of the cross and the eternal state, I think we will recapture some power to live today with prophetic hope, with forward-looking hope of his return, which is good news. Good news of coming judgment and resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. All right. So with that, um, let me make a couple of uh, comments for you on my outline, and then we'll open it up for questions. Um, so this is what I would have loved to have gotten on a, on a, on a PowerPoint slide, but let me just point you to my outline uh, number one. And um, do you all have that? Can I just refer to it? I could pull it up on the screen, but I'm seeing heads. Yeah, okay. So I'm just going to read a couple of things and then um, maybe just take another maybe five minutes. So as I said, my outline is reconciliation is number one. Number two is restoration. I didn't think I'd get to the ologies, but I want to set up a diocesan dialogue around Christology and restoring the Jewishness of Jesus and all the implications therein for the glory and power of the gospel for all nations of the world, the goodness of that news. 
and ecclesiologically the rest restoration of the presence of Jews in the church and missiologically a restoration of the prioritization of the gospel to the Jew first and then eschatologically a restoration of all things. That's the all things, Jesus returning. And then what Peter preached at Pentecost was this restoration of all things, him coming back, the stuff after that, and then the eternal state. And he's, and it's less eternal state, I believe, uh, and it's more all the stuff that he wanted to prepare us for so we'd be ready for the next great move of God as we usher his return in. And so, but all of those ologies really are fueled by, uh, I think, clear lenses that I'm going to introduce under this category of reconciliation, because that's what this three-week series is about, reconciliation of all the ethnos, black and white, Latino and Latina. But we can't, we can, and I love that, Stuart, I got from you the other day during one of the race relations, you said, as a church, we want to listen to the cries of the world, but not mimic them. Oh, that was gold, man. That landed on my heart. I'm like, boom, because <laughs> I'm in the academy, you know, and uh, the academy is really good at absorbing and leading the wisdom of man, but that's not going to have the power to change lives or to change the world. So uh, the wisdom of man wants to glory in diversity, but the wisdom of God glories in the resurrection that's already united every diversity. <laughs> And the fundamental prototypical foundational diversity reality that God injected into humanity was the Jew-Gentile distinction. And everything flows from there. And so, first arrow, number one, reconciliation, unity with distinction. This is a familiar trope in our diocese. The fully alive teaching offers a biblical view of humanity with two genders, male and female, in perfect unity in Christ, but with distinctions that tell God's story and give him glory. Similarly, God's divinely injected anthropological taxonomy is two peoples, Jew and Gentile. Started with Abraham, consummated with covenant with Israel, and Israel, uh, Jew-Gentile is the distinction. So the theology of headship becomes so important because headship is designed for the flourishing of those being covered and led. And as you have preached, Bishop Stewart, male headship is about provision and protection. I believe that the church is floundering a little bit with an overly myopic application of these principles in issues of ordination and church roles, which is important. I'm not saying they're not important. I honor the high stakes reality of all of that. But what I'm trying to do is to say, guys, that's a narrowly framed argument. Male-female unity with distinction is a much bigger reality than just who can be ordained and what church leadership roles look like. That's been too long a source of division in the body. And so to get the wider frame, um, the reason this is so important is because unless you, uh, I want you to think in your own mind, how convinced are you? How much does male-female unity with distinction and all the issues around gender equality? If we had more time, I would want to push you and ask you specific questions and talk with each other about what you think about that, because I think it's highly consequential. 
but not just to engage the gender confusion and the sexuality confusion that's coming on like a freight train in our society, but because those sit on a theological fault line and a deeper parallel spiritual fault line is the Jew-Gentile unity with distinction. And it gets on really consequential uh, realities. And so um, I've given you some definitions. Uh, I've already talked to you about distinction theology. God doesn't play favorites, but he does make distinctions. Uh, I've given you some definitions. And I'm going to speak about definitions and then the continuum of orientations and then stop for questions. Um, but I better go quick. Simple definitions. Jew and Gentile are on the individual level. Israel and nations are on the corporate level. Okay, I've given you five definitions here. Jew, and these are, these are not to be uh, exhaustive, but I think they're helpful and biblically defensible. They don't answer every question, but I think they're solid, biblical, defensible, helpful. The good definition for a Jew is a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very simple. Physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you want a nuance of discussion, you get into what I call blood belief behavior. Is it blood that makes you a Jew? Is it beliefs that makes you a Jew? Or is it your behavior and your orthopraxy? And Jews argue that all the different ways. And that's a meaningful discussion, but not for our purposes. For our purposes, it's enough to say a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The biological component is enough. doesn't answer every question. But ultimately, that's not the point. God did it for a point. And the point is um, what we wrestle with in, in our uh, uh, biblical scriptural engagement. A Gentile is simply a non-Jew. Hebrew, it's goy. It's a Gentile, a member of the nations. So um, on the individual level, Jew, physical descendant, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Gentile, everybody else. On the corporate level, you've got Israel. And Israel is Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Jacob grew to a nation in Exodus, became a holy nation. Holy just is set apart. At Mount Sinai, God set apart that one nation to reach all the nations. So it's a goy kadosh, a holy nation. If you look back, Jacob, when he came back to Bethel, if you remember his story, when he came back to Bethel, God spoke to him in one of the most critical uh, in Genesis 3.15, you get a proto-euangelion, right? In Genesis 3.15, you get a proto-ecclesiology, a proto-biblical ecclesiology in Genesis 35.15. When God said to Jacob on his way back into, into hometown, he said, I'm going to make you a goy and a, a ukahal goyim, a nation and a community of nations, a nation and a kahal of nations, a nation and a community of nations, a nation and an ecclesia of nations. It's the paradigm of one nation and all nations within a covenant community where you get there, God bringing the Gentiles in as Gentiles, preserving the distinction of Israel and the Jewish people in a covenant community, forward looking to the salvation of all of Israel as you're inviting all the Gentiles in until the fullness of the Gentiles is full. And then God's going to then deal with Israel, both for more judgment and for more blessing because the cup of judgment was not satisfied in 70 AD. There's more judgment coming and there's more blessing coming. And we can overemphasize one at the expense of the other, but both, we have to hold them both in place. And um, where I pointed you to in Romans 2, 
A judgment begins at the house of the Lord for the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The distinction cuts both ways, both for blessing and for judgment. Um, Exodus 4.22, Israel is God's firstborn son. I loved Josh, your paradigm of the adopted children and your second one doesn't invalidate your love for the first. Um, and all of that is very, very important for a biblical theology of Jew and Gentile and Israel and nations in Jesus, in the new covenant reality and working all of that out together. Lastly, Israel is a people and a land. The people of Israel and the land of Israel. It's two sides of the same coin. You can't break them apart. Theologically, we do it all the time, but you're going to have to reconcile putting it back together because Israel is a people and a land. And there's a covenant that God made, not to the church, that God made it with Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The new covenant is to Israel and the Gentiles are participants in that. There's a people and land of Israel, two sides of the same coin. The king of Israel made a covenant with Israel. There is a king of Israel. There is a faith of Israel that largely you see disobedience. But when you read your Bible, you see a testimony of obedience of the remnant. Jews who got it, followed it, and wrote it down so Gentiles could come in. And what we're after with Israel is going beyond an idea of Israel to an intimacy with God and with Jewish people to invite the nations into this amazing reality. So if Israel is both a people and a land, remember, the church is a people only. The church is a people only. I left out nations, all nations besides God, covenant nation, and God chose Israel to reach the nations. Okay, that's the point's been made. So the church is a people. It's Jews and Gentiles united in Christ. Israel is both a people and a land. And so we've got to wrestle with that, and we won't fall into the gutter of them being synonymous church in Israel, and we won't fall into the gutter of them being mutually exclusive. And we'll wrestle together, okay? And then lastly, the continuum. Um, I might just leave, uh, I'll just read it and then open for questions. Uh, God just put this on my heart a couple weeks ago. Um, as four, four points on a continuum that I would invite you to reflect, where do you see yourself in a heart level orientation? And I partly use the term orientation to be a little provocative because orientation conveys a lot in this day and age in terms of the confusion that's coming on gender. And remember, gender confusion fuels sexuality confusion, which is all about sacramental covenantal reality on a theological fault line about Jew-Gentile unity with distinction. That's why this is so important because the enemy is after it. So the continuum, so think about where are you on this continuum and where is your church and our diocese, and where are we going? And I want to push us to the sacramental. Point number one, antagonistic, is the presence of negative associations, affections, and commitments toward Israel and Jewish people that's fueled by fleshly offense, satanic attack, and distorted scripture interpretation. Fleshly offense is rooted in the offense of election and covenant. God chose Abram through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Jacob, not Esau. It's his choice. Take it up with him. <laughs> Apathetic is a little better, but it's the absence of attention or concern regarding Israel and Jewish people that stems from a lack of relevancy in one's life. And then we move to sentimental. 
where the relevancy of Israel and Jewish people is casual and peripheral with minimal impact on one's discipleship and life in God. And lastly, sacramental. Discipleship and life in God is transformed by understanding and participating in the embodied role of Israel and Jewish people in redemptive history, past, present, and future. And I'm going to be continuing to push us to glorify and maximize the glory of the past cross-based witness. Absolutely. The gospel of personal salvation is the way in. But the gospel of the kingdom has got to be worked out in the present and future anticipation of his return and the salvation of all of Israel and the consummation and restoration of all things. So with that, I will open for questions. Um, Dr. Bell, I had a question. Um, I'm wondering, what do you, I would be curious to know what words of judgment and what words of blessing you think the prophets would pronounce on the modern nation state of Israel? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think I'm going to answer by framing how I think about it rather than declaring a judgment because that would, I'm reticent to put myself in place of judge because God's the judge. And, um, but I do think the question helpfully frames uh, the question of how do we look at the modern nation state of ethnic Israel as a geopolitical reality resurrected in 1948 with a significant change in 67 with a reunified Jerusalem under Jewish autonomy and how do we understand then that geopolitical nation state in the Middle East um, today as we try to think biblically and Christianly? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, it's a sim simple question, right? So I'm just kidding. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I think that there is clearly... Uh, the absence of corporate faith within the nation state today, clearly. And so there is no salvation apart from saving faith in the Messiah. And so Israel corporately, collectively is still in unbelief. And so there is judgment coming for unbelief like there would be for any individual or, you know, this challenges us to think about the nature of salvation where biblically we, we do get a corporate dimension at the family level. So I like to think about the difference between individual salvation, familial salvation, national salvation. Biblically, we get some interesting family dynamics going on where the, the saving faith of one spouse sanctifies a spouse and the kids in a way that I think is challenging for us to understand the depth of what that means sacramentally. So I would look at the modern state of Israel, and I would say corporately in unbelief, there's no salvation apart from that. So there's no, but, but I don't think biblically, uh, I think the biblical witness is that God was going to restore the Jewish people physically to the land 
before he was going to restore spiritually the people to the Lord. So you get the 1900s, God begins to physically restore the Jewish people to the land before God's going to restore the Jewish people spiritually to the Lord. And so Deuteronomy 30, Zechariah 12, and um, Ezekiel 37, I think are the most clear prophetic witnesses that foretell a physical restoration in unbelief before the Spirit is poured out for saving faith. So you kind of have to look at kind of, well, how do you make sense of that geopolitical reality? And I think judgment is coming for unbelief, but Jesus is coming back, <clears throat> and there will be saving faith when they welcome him back and say <clears throat> what Jesus said they would say in Matthew, at the end of Matthew 22, you will not see me again until you say, <clears throat> blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so I think we're moving forward to a time, and this is why this is so important. We're moving into a, into a time where the geopolitical chaos is only going to escalate and understanding with a compass north, plumb lining clarity, how to understand what God's doing and how to stand with the purposes of God is critical. And the impulse that the Jews don't deserve the land because they're not in obedience is a distortion of the scripture and the witness of Ezekiel. Jews never got the land through obedience. Jews kept the land through obedience. And so it's a perversion of the actual gospel to think that obedience earns the land. So we got kicked out from the first exile into Babylon and the second exile post-70 AD Rome and 135 AD out of the whole city after the Bar Kokhba revolution and the Jews were banished from the city. And it's been that way since 67. Those exiles were because of disobedience. God has restored. He began in the early 1900s, culminating in 48 and 67. And today it's a big mess. So I'm calling for a restoration of prophetic clarity and vision to stand with the purposes of God as we call for saving faith individually, familially, and nationally. And so the blessing of the prophets for um, judgment, I think, is going to be the great tribulation. And the blessing of the prophets is going to be the salvation of all of Israel and the flourishing of the nations and ushering in um, the millennial into the millennial kingdom into the eternal state. Thank you so much, Dr. Bohm, for this teaching. Um, as a preacher, I have a question for you. Um, what would you encourage a Gentile preacher preaching to a predominantly Gentile Christian audience? How do we handle preaching from Old Testament texts where there are specific promises? Thinking through like in Second uh, Timothy, the Lord says, or, or uh, Paul says of the Lord Jesus Christ in him, all the promises of God find their yes, so we can have a sense of assurance. And, and Romans uh, 14 says, you know, all of these things were written down in former times for your encouragement, for your upbuilding. Um, how freely can we apply for our encouragement certain promises? Where's the dividing line um, between as those who have been brought into uh, Israel and um, the riches of Israel um, and participate in it, uh, how much we can claim as part of our inheritance? Is it like only the promises of redemption or promises to the land too? How does all of that 
sort of uh, work out? How would you advise an expositor in parsing those things out wisely? I would encourage, it's a great question, Will. What a great question. Um, if I was going to throw out a simple answer, I'd say pray for humility and call Josh. <laughs> and talk to him and you guys, that'll be great. Like, but I, I'll say a little bit more. Um, <clears throat> I would say uh, passionately pursue rigorous theological scriptural obedience. But make that secondary to a hermeneutics of the heart of a posture of humility before the Lord. And pray for a soft heart and a spirit of revelation and preach out of that. And even if you get some of the wrong words, there's grace to, to make up for it. But, but, but doctrine, careful, hear me. Doctrine doesn't save. Jesus saves. So we can get so caught up in the right doctrine and the right theology, but what people need is the overflowing of the rivers of living water out of your heart when you connect with Jesus. And if you are connected to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, who was not resurrected gender neutral or ethnically neutral, connect with him as a resurrected man, a resurrected Jewish man. If you engage Christologically with him, and then you're trying to preach about the nature of the church and you get into this eschatological restoration or the missiological restoration of, or the uh, eschatological, whatever restoration you're getting into, if you're connecting with him and his spirit, then uh, I would point you to my little model on at the very end uh, under eschatology where we're full of the Holy Spirit. And I've got a little chart that says the informational is only transformational when it's relational. And so if you're relating with God and you're operating out of an anointing of, um, then people are going to be drawn and they don't have to have the right answers. They need a right relationship with the Lord through your preaching. And you pray for that. And so my little chart is informational becomes transformational when it's relational, but we've got to pray through it so that the Holy spirit makes it revelational. And so, um, uh, you know, when you just, when God convicts you that you've really been, maybe missed some of the humility and repentance that Stuart, I so respect you spoke out at the wall with me as God reveals that. Um, and we're honest and humble to repent. He poured, revival starts with repentance always. So passionately go for it. When you blow it, repent, and he's going to do far more above beyond what you can ask or imagine. So go for the rigorous intellectual doctrinal theological rigor but go for a deeper heart level engagement with the spirit of God, with humility that he can breathe on revivalistically led with repentance. Thank you, Dr. Baum. Well, you could also invite Dr. Baum to come when you preach um, <laughs> because he's been very gracious, but he's definitely, and we're, we're very much in this process still as a preaching team at Resurrection, but becoming more and more sensitized to, again, the way in which our training didn't necessarily help us understand in Israelology. Um, so have him come and listen and he'll let you know graciously, uh, but, uh, pointedly like only a, a Jewish prophet can. <laughs> it's been really good to be provoked uh, this morning by both a Gentile, um, and a Jew. I actually think that this feels a little bit like Ephesians 2 to me, where, um, in all seriousness, uh, we've had uh, two scholars, uh, two brothers in Yeshua, um, who one Gentile, one Jew, and both of you come at it very differently. Um, 
and yet I think with a lot of resonant themes. And it's been uh, really powerful to receive that on both sides. And I would say to everyone else, uh, um, you know, speaking as a Gentile who's um, eaten, uh, needed to eat a lot of humble pie on a lot of issues, not only as a Gentile, I get to eat a lot of humble pie in a lot of ways um, as I engage with my black brothers and sisters and my Latino brothers and sisters and my sisters in Christ. Um, the place of humility it, it is the way of the cross, right? And it's the way of freedom, as Dr. Boehm just taught so well. So these can be bracing conversations and kind of go, oh, man, I feel a little overwhelmed. Like, ha! Huh? Or uh, Tommy just said so beautifully, there's grace, because you can feel so also like, I'm going to get this wrong. Like, I'm going to say something wrong. Um, and the fact of the matter is, we're going to. Um, we are going to. It's, it's going to happen, as we, particularly as we build a multi-ethnic family. And a multi-ethnic family that I believe deeply is going to be also a multi-ethnic Jewish Gentile family. Dr. Bohm keeps reminding me we have a lot of work to do before we're really ready to set out and do that, and he's absolutely right. But I have every hope that Dr. Bohm's going to help us, um, and hopefully other uh, Jewish believers that are coming to our diocese, help us to figure out how do we honor to the Jew first in our evangelistic church planting efforts. Um, Minneapolis has significant Jewish population. Chicagoland is very significant Jewish population. Um, Madison, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we got a lot of work to do on the Jewish people. Um, we're waiting for that right time, I think, and we're doing a lot of foundation work to get there. But I loved your missiological emphasis, uh, Dr. Bohm, as well. Um, I probably should conclude us. Um, I was tracking the whole time, by the way, but I did lost a little bit of gas here. COVID's not quite, <laughs> still has some impact on me, but I was able to track with the whole thing. I just cannot thank uh, the two of you enough uh, for this ministry to us this morning. This has been extraordinary, um, just extraordinary. Uh, so we'll continue on um, next week with uh, more and more riches. Uh, Deacon John, would you, would you pray for us as we, as we conclude? I surely would. <clears throat> the Lord be with you. And also with you. Holy Father, uh, we come so grateful uh, that you have sought and found us in Yeshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom you are engrafting um, people from every tongue and tribe, that you are creating kingdom diversity. Um, we praise you. Uh, we thank you for uh, the gifts that you've given us in the church. And today, in particular, to Josh and Thomas, um, thank you for um, their teaching, uh, their prophetic words to us. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that you would continue to mold and shape us as your people um, and as a people, a people of truth, uh, a people who can be um, world-affirming and world-denying in all the ways that... Um, um, bespeak your kingdom and bear witness to it. Uh, we ask your blessing upon them for um, bringing the good news of the gospel to us today. Uh, we pray that you'd send us from this place in peace um, um, and that you would continue to bless uh, resurrection, our diocese, um, in this endeavor to um, bear witness to the good news of the gospel with respect to uh, a kingdom diversity. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.